I'd like us to open up that psalm again, Psalm 22, and, and just pick up where we left off. Start reading in verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Then all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth Eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. With the time that we've got left this morning, I just want to make three simple observations about Psalm 22. And I tell you, I am uh, a very small person taking up a very huge and wonderful piece of Scripture today. I want you to notice, first of all, about this psalm, that it includes the difficult words. That was obvious, wasn't it? Let's acknowledge something here. The subject that is at hand here is the very worst. We're not talking about you're trying to finish your Facebook post and lost an internet connection. Or you made your order at Dunkin' Donuts and they were out of the triple chocolate brownies. You know, that's the worst, right? The way that God does things on earth when it comes to mankind are not the easy way. Have you noticed that? God never chooses the simple way. In the very beginning, everything was good. God says it was good. It was very good. And at the end, as we read it, it's going to be wonderful, better than we can describe. But in the middle, that journey isn't going to be simple. This psalm is the story of the cross. Our redemption was not easy. Paul says in Ephesians, we therefore have redemption through his blood. The blood of Jesus is what makes us right with God. Not the sweat of Jesus, not the difficulty of sleep for Jesus. The blood of Jesus. The life of Jesus. His life laid down, taken away. It wasn't discomfort It was mocking, it was piercing, it was spitting, it was gambling for his clothing. It was bones out of joint, a heart melted like wax, a desperate season of abandonment, all written about the cross a thousand years before it happened. 
I wonder of all the things in life that you could be, what could be the worst than the third verse of a four-verse hymn? You know what I'm talking about, some of you. That's the verse we always skip, you know. Let's all turn to this hymn and sing the first, second, and last verse. Poor verse three. No one knows verse three. I don't know why it got that way. I just know that when I look at life, there are some places like that I'd just like to skip, wouldn't you? Aren't there some verses you just like to skip over? Of course. Nobody wants to suffer. There are certain aspects of life I just like to skip. We, we don't expect that life should have those parts sometimes. I remember not long before we moved here to Rockford in Joplin, Missouri, one night at a men's meeting, an area preacher was speaking that night. And I remember distinctly him talking about how we think about our slice of life. Everybody gets a slice of life, right? And we assume that our slice of life should be a good slice of life. It should be good, like pumpkin pie or chocolate cream, not mincemeat or something like that. We assume it should be a good one. And here was a man who was talking with this in his life. He and his wife were taking care of their adult son who had been in an accident and was permanently disabled. And they would be his caretakers for the rest of their lives, the rest of his life. The next day, his wife, he said, was to have a major surgery. And here he was up speaking to us men. His point was, we have no guarantee that life will be just ducky. And when life isn't great, we shouldn't discredit God. I listened to his words that night. Consider it. The praise part of Psalm 22 bears greater meaning because the first part of Psalm 22 is so harsh. What if it was just verses 21 and following? It, it's kind, it would be kind of like someone who comes up to you in the middle of a hard time in life and says to you, I know just how you feel. No, you don't. What if Job's story, remember Job? What if his story had been, his life had been, just like Satan described it? Remember, basically, Satan said to God, oh yeah, Job serves you. He serves you because you bless him. He serves you because everything about his life is great. Take it away and it would change. But the rest of the story of Job is what makes it so valuable to us, isn't it? Because when he went through the difficulties that he went through, when he went through real hard times, now it would no longer be doubted, but his faith was proven, and Satan was shamed. The hard part of life is included in his story. Some of you noticed my wife is with me here today. Yay! She hates attention being drawn to her. I'll tell you, Carrie's walking around on a new knee. She's got a bionic knee now. And I can tell you this about her new knee. It hurts. It's stiff. It's swollen. Every day now, she's got to push it and stretch it and bend it to get it to heal correctly. But guess what? She's okay with that. Why? Well, because a few months ago, it hurt much more. 
And it swelled, and even though she stretched it and tried to do things with it to help it to heal, it was never going to heal under those conditions. The future for that joint was not good. The point is that the pain and the problem of her past helps make her present pain and problems a whole lot more tolerable. Remembering the pain from before before helps keep the pain of the present in our right perspective. Remember how James starts out the book of James? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, not lacking in anything. Maybe we can learn to appreciate some of the difficult verses of life's song when we realize that it's a necessary part to be whole. This psalm, Psalm 22, helps me with that idea. Starts out rough, but it ends glorious. And just like Psalm 22 isn't complete without the difficult parts, neither is your life or anyone else's for that matter. In other words, here's the second thing I noticed about it. You must look at the whole psalm. You must look at the whole psalm. I was in the waiting room at OSF sometime back there for someone's surgery. And I was sitting there, and and it was neat. They have a morning devotional thought. They play it on the, the intercom system for the whole hospital there at OSF, and I appreciate a lot of things about OSF. I'm glad that they do that. That morning, I was glad to hear that they were reading from one of my favorite chapters of Scripture, Romans chapter 8. You'll recognize the words of that. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then they skipped a verse. I'm serious. Verse 36 where it says, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, Paul says, but in all these things we've been made more than conquerors through him who loved us. But they left out verse 36 and read on. Someone somewhere decided they needed to edit what God had put in scripture. When Paul reached back to Psalm 44 and quoted that verse to show that you can't take Scripture out of context. And they did that very thing by editing it. In that process, they not only preempted what God had to say, they missed the power of the text. I still appreciate OSF, but they could have done a better job on that one. No one on this side of heaven, can adequately explain the depth of Jesus' words as he who came from the Father, as he who is one with the Father, cries out to the Father as though he has entirely abandoned him. My God, my God, why? Can you use some words to explain that to me? Words that would cover the subject well enough? I can't come up with them. See, we face two challenges when we read Psalm 22. 
We face challenges not just in reading it, but also the same challenges in life. This psalm shines a light on the way that we have limitations. We're limited because we can't see the invisible God, and we are limited because we can't see the future. I don't know how in the midst of suffering the equivalent of eternity in hell that Jesus felt, let alone what he was thinking. I do know this, though. That for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. I do know that he was in the process of canceling our debt with its legal demands. I know that he was in the process of disarming the rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame, it says in Colossians. And I know that at the end of his time on the cross, he would issue a victory cry just before committing his spirit to the Father. Jesus knew what he was doing. But somehow still Jesus turned to the first words of Psalm 22, the hard words to describe some of what he was experiencing there. And so with our inability to see the invisible God and our inability to know the future, there are some times in our lives when we are singing verse 1 of Psalm 22, aren't we? God, where are you? Looking at Jesus and this psalm together, though, there are things that I think can help us, two helps that we need to remember. You see, one is that our inability to see God doesn't mean that he has left. Isn't that good news? God is there throughout this psalm. Even though we don't look for that, even when we may not notice his presence, it doesn't mean that he's gone. He's still there. And I tell you, I'm glad that God is bigger. And I'm glad that God is beyond what I am able to see. Because to wish for God to be smaller is to wish for him to be less. To wish that we could somehow capture an image of God is to wish that somehow we could limit him and make him less amazing. Would you, would you rather go on a Caribbean cruise and see a sunset on the beach or would you rather see a picture of it? And when you go and you take that picture and you're showing it to someone else, what do you say about that picture? Oh, the picture doesn't do it justice. Our inability to see God doesn't mean that he's not there. Here's a second help, too. Our inability to see the end doesn't take away from the joy that is to come. Life needs to be lived with the end in mind. Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. He had that on his mind. A large part of the encouragement of the New Testament to Christians who were in the middle of suffering for their faith, a large part of the encouragement to those who were going through that was what? Remember your hope. Remember heaven. Remember what is to come. Think about the future. Live with that in mind. That's our great hope in Christ, brothers and sisters. That's what lives at Central Christian Church. If we could see it already, by the way, we wouldn't call it hope. Instead, we're counting on something that we can't see just yet. That means that we read the whole book, not just the beginning. And that's part of the deal. We need to picture the future that God has promised to those who love him, not just the challenges of where we currently live. Psalm 22 
has got to be taken in its entirety. You've got to read the whole book. And life needs to be taken that way too. You've got to look at the whole song, not just the first part. Here's a third observation I make about this psalm, and that is that your time in this song will help you appreciate the value of being redeemed. This Jesus song is the song of the cross. Maybe one reason Jesus referred to these words was to help you and me today to remember the great treasure of what we have because of what he did on the cross. So for those of you in the crowd this morning who are math nuts, I want to give you three equations today, all right? Three equations to help you remember these things, three equations that can help us. Here's the first one. One plus one equals sin is ugly. One plus one equals sin is ugly. Satan is very talented in making sin seem attractive. It tells us in 2 Corinthians 11 that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And he has been making sin look worth the cost ever since the first sin. So people dive into sin headfirst because they're not doing the math. The math is one plus one equals sin is ugly. Sometimes it helps us to be reminded of the reasons that we have to make and to keep a complete break with sin in our lives. Add it up. Do the math. Look around you and be honest about what it is doing to people, people who are close to you, people that you know, people who are far away from you. Look at what it's doing to them. And let's not be in the habit of just turning away because we find it hard to think about or we don't want to become involved or we don't want to stir up controversy by saying something we could have some raw honesty about what sin does to people maybe we could peel back some of the veneer and we could show it for the ugly thing that it is by the way scripture tells us to do that Ephesians chapter 5 verse 11 Paul wrote take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness but instead expose them For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. This isn't theoretical. This is real life. And it's already on your smartphone, and it's at your front door, and it's coming to a neighborhood near you. So I challenge you not to be silenced about the truth of how sin is destroying individuals and families and neighborhoods and whole cities and it is now even being directed against an entire race of people again. Sin. What does this have to do with Psalm 22? I'm glad you asked. Sin is horrible to the point that it required something horrible to deal with it. My Lord hung on a cross face to face with sin. Here's the second equation. One plus one equals sin is ugly. Here's the second one. Deep suffering equals deep love. Sometimes you can measure the depth of a person's love by what they are willing to go through for the sake of the person that they love. Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, and so he struck a deal with her father, Laban. Laban said, 
work for me seven years, she's yours. That's a pretty tough bargain. But it says in Genesis, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. That's deep love. How much would you be willing to give up for someone that you truly love? You know, I'd like to think that I would be willing to lay down my life for the people that I love. We're going to be celebrating uh, Veterans Day in a week. We're going to be thinking about people who made that very big step, who were willing to say, I would lay down my life for the things that I love, the people that I love. That certainly would be a measurement of the depth of my love, wouldn't it? In a way, I'm supposed to be giving up my life every day. Psalm 22 invites us to look at it and to probe the depths of Jesus' suffering to help us appreciate the depth of Jesus' love. Jesus invites us to do the same. When in the hours before the cross, he says to his disciples in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You want to measure love? There it is. And when we look at the depths of Jesus' suffering through this psalm, we get a better view into the depths of his love for us. Deep suffering equals deep love. Here's a third equation. Deliberate audit equals appreciation. Let me explain that. Taking an audit of someone's estate sometimes reveals that it has gained a lot of value, and sometimes that happens without people realizing it, like when you go into the closet and pull out the shoebox of old baseball cards. And in the collection, you find a T206 Honus Wagner and a 1952 Mickey Mantle and a 1914 Babe Ruth and a 1969 Reggie Jackson. By the way, if you happen to have any of those in your closet at home, I'd be glad to give you a few bucks for them. <laughs> Sometime in 1996, down in Tennessee, a guy named Stan Caffey bought an old copy of the Declaration of Independence that he found at a yard sale. It was a few bucks. He liked it. He hung it up on the wall of his garage. It hung there for nine years. Caffey got married and his new wife, Linda, and he were cleaning out the garage. Kathy said this, I used to be a pack rat, but now I'm trying to get rid of things. The best I can recall, we had a little debate about whether to keep it or donate it, and she won this copy. And so Linda took it with some other stuff to donate it to the Music City Thrift Store in Nashville, Tennessee. Kathy said later, if he hadn't donated that picture then, that copy, then it'd still be hanging on his garage well, just after it was there in March of 2006, a guy named Michael Sparks made one of his weekly visits to that thrift store. There he picked up a candelabra, a set of salt and pepper shakers, and this rolled up copy of, a, of the Declaration of Independence, which was marked 1823. He paid $2.48 for it. You hear what's coming. Because once he got it home, he started to look it over carefully and do some research, and he figured out that what he was owning was one of the 200 copies that was commissioned by John Quincy Adams in 1820. Only 20-some of those are even known to exist still. 
year later it was authenticated. He sold it at an auction for $477,000 and some change. Michael Sparks, who sold that, was asked about the man who donated the copy to the thrift store. He said this, it just doesn't pay to keep a clean house. (laughs) We would do well to regularly count the value of what we have received from Jesus Christ. Where did it come from? How did we happen to get it? Paul says in Galatians 3.13 that Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is he who hangs on a tree. I want to tell you this morning, if you've never had any regard for what Jesus did for you on the cross up to this point in your life, I've got a challenge for you. I challenge you to read Psalm 22. Read the whole thing. Read this Jesus song and then read the descriptions of what Jesus did for you as they're recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Remember how this was handed to you, what Jesus did for you on the cross. I really like the words of George McLeod that I ran across as he challenges us to look more fully upon the cross of Jesus and what was happening there. Listen to what he wrote. I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace as well as on the steeple of the church. I am recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on a town garbage heap, at a crossroad of politics so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek. And at the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble because that is where he died. And that is what he died about. And that is where Christ's men ought to be and what church people ought to be about. Read the whole song. Let it assure you that God has shown the greatest love for you, even in the times of life that you struggle, even in the times that you're struggling with right now. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. That's you and me. That message of what he has done has gotten to us today. Someone proclaimed to a people yet unborn this great news. Here we are reading it today. If you've never responded to this gift that Jesus Christ paid for, life, forgiveness, heaven. This morning, we want you to make that decision. We we encourage you to do that. We're not going to chase you down. We're not going to drag you forward. But we're going to appeal to you to look at this Savior who loves you. The one who started those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
in the mission to save you. If you're ready to make that decision this morning, it's a matter of giving your life to Jesus Christ. It's a matter of saying he deserves to be Lord. I acknowledge who he is and that I need him. That's called confessing Christ. It means giving up your old life, making a total break from that old life and saying I'm done with it. It's just destruction. I want his new life and that's the way I'm gonna go. That's called repentance. It means being buried in water. That's what happens in this baptistry up here. We've watched it over the last month for several people. Being laid down and placed below water and raised up. That's not magic, but God says he'll meet you there. God says he will give you new life. He'll wash away your sins. And you'll walk a new person from that day forward. That's called baptism. And then... Look around you, this bunch of people. That's called fellowship. You get brothers and sisters. You get a whole new family. So that you're not going through this all by yourself. You've got people who walk alongside you. And when you stumble, they help you up. And when the burden is too heavy, they come alongside you and carry it with you. And they hold you accountable. Because frankly, we all need that. Amen? If you're ready for that this morning, we're ready to help you make that decision. Let's stand up. We're going to sing a song as we conclude this morning. And then uh, during that time, if, it, if you're wanting to make this decision or if you're just wanting to learn more about it, you've got questions, please come down here to the front. If you need somebody just to pray with you, encourage you today, uh, this front part of the auditorium. It's kind of like school. Nobody sits in the front row. Well, it just makes it open, which is good, because if you have a need like that, uh, we'll be here. I'm here. Uh, our elders are here. Our staff is here. We want to encourage and help you today. Let's pray together. Father, we confess to you that in life's difficult moments, we often wish that we weren't having to face the things that we do. Thank you for the comfort that we find in knowing that even Jesus, at the, at the greatest of difficulty that he faced for us, directed us to Scripture to know that you are there even though we may not feel or see you, and to know that in the end, Lord, you bring us joy and help. Thank you. Uh, thank you for what Jesus did on the cross. Thank you for the, the pain that he was willing to go through so that we could have life in his name. Father, forgive us when we treat that like it's not of great value. But help us please to live like people who carry around this precious treasure. Not because we ourselves are so wonderful a container for it to be in, but because it is a beautiful treasure. And Father, I pray today that there will be good decisions made for you that will change lives, that will build your kingdom. Right now, work on our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.